Good morning, everyone. It is good to see everyone here. My name is Dennis Stewart, and I'll be teaching today. And the subject of the lesson is Live, Learn, Lead. So we're going to be talking about a lot of things. Peter, Isaiah, others, and you and I. So there'll be a lot of topics here covered in this three word title, Live, Learn, Lead. Um, <clears throat> Josephus tells us that, that in the Sea of Galilee had several kinds of edible fish. They all caught up in one net they, and then they departmentalize them later. But they, several kinds of, of edible fish were in the Sea of Galilee during that time and, and because of the overhead cost for the fishermen of, uh, think about it, the boats, you know, the, the, the nets, were very costly personnel to get to help you, the, the oars and tools and all the other expenses that they had. It was very common for fishermen to work together as a team. If you were in one boat, you could have one size net, but if you had two boats, you could have a much larger net between the two boats and let the nets down further and catch more fish. Load up one ship and then drop the net again and see what you could do to fill up the other uh, ship. And then they would uh, split the, uh, the profits of the evening 50-50. And it was a, uh, a, a cooperative, you might call it. Sometimes families were large enough that the, that the family could have two boats, but very common for fishermen to work together back then. And uh, even though there were some times when you would come back after a long night and the next day and you didn't have any fish, still fishermen uh, of that day were earning more for their families than the regular citizens were. So they, there was a higher level of income in those homes where there were fishermen. Than, than in most of the other homes of that day. So we'll start reading here at Luke chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, and it's a familiar verse. We're going to take, I hope, to be a different look at all of this. And it came to pass, verse, chapter 5 of Luke, verse 1 through 11, that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Genesaret. Well, that's on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. It really is the Sea of Galilee. It's the locals gave it their name, which was Genesaret. And it's between Capernaum and Magdala. Everybody's heard of Magdala, I know, and Capernaum. And in that northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And they saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them. And they were washing their nets. And so he, Jesus, entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's ship, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let your nets down for a draught. Now a draught, that's a huge number of fish, is what Jesus was telling them. You're going to catch a lot. Um, and Simon answering said unto him, Master, 
We have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word I'll let down the net. And when he had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their nets brake, and they beckoned unto their partners, and were in the other that were in the other ship, that they would come and help them. And they came, and they filled both ships, so that they began to sink. That's how many fish that they had caught as a result of following Christ's leading there. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished at all that were, uh, that were with, and all that were with him were astonished as well at the draught of fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now it takes a, a lot for, for something to astonish a fisherman who'd been fishing really all of his life that he could fish. And they caught so many that he was absolutely astounded by he'd never seen anything like it before. How do you surprise a fisherman who'd fished all his life with the draught of fish that were caught? And it was so astonishing to him that he said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. This, this is a miracle. This has got to be a miracle. And in this, if you'll remember this as we go through the lesson, <clears throat> this is the beginning of a conviction, a beginning of confession, a beginning of life changing to know who you're dealing with. When Peter saw Christ, he also saw himself. And that's a key thing to our relationship with God through Christ, right there. We cannot help but see ourselves when we really see and appreciate who Christ is, who God the Father is, because we are so without, without him. <clears throat> well, there are many cooperatives known in ancient Palestine at that time. These Fishermen did this all the time. It's not unusual for Simon and Andrew to be business partners with the family of Zebedee, who were James and John. Men working uh, from more than one boat, as I said, they, they could cast down a larger net and then and, and, uh, have more profits that evening as a result. Historians tell us that there was over 4,000 ships in the Sea of Galilee at that time. Imagine that. <clears throat> so when they saw another ship <laughs> close by and beckoned them over, it wasn't just any ship. <laughs> it was a partnership that they had. And um, <clears throat> when they called the other ship, they were calling their partners over, and James and John came as quickly as they could. No doubt they were also cleaning their nets and were finished for the evening, as was Peter and Andrew. But they loaded the nets and they came over as fast as they could. Um, so even though there were evenings when you, you may not catch any fish, and that's what happened to Peter and Andrew and James and John that night. No fish. Uh, even so, 
they made more household income than the, uh, the average family during that time. So leaving their jobs was going to be a big impact on the household income, wasn't it? That's a big deal. What happens to the rest of the family? How do they live? What are they going to do? Well, they had a nice start, a whole lot of fish. <laughs> and how long is that going to last? We don't know. We're not told. This, this episode is not about the fish or the Peter and John and the rest. It's about Christ. But we're not told, but what we need to keep in mind is that God doesn't call us to leave our families destitute. He doesn't. We have a responsibility, don't we? And some of them did as well. Peter was married. There were other disciples that were married and had children, we are told. But we immediately see the point of Jesus' miracle in these verses. Jesus was calling Peter and Andrew and James and John all at the same time to become fishers of men, fishers of people. Peter and the others learned in God's timing that this calling was for all people, man, woman, child, any ethnicity, any race, any, all people, all of them. And this had to be learned over time because of all of the prejudices of that day. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now that's a quick change of life, isn't it? They answered the call at that time. They hauled in the fish, brought them to shore, and immediately left that draught of fish and followed Christ. So we can't help but notice the contrast in the Old Testament when it, a turning to God held the image of impending judgment, do this or else. But in the New Testament, when Christ changes his life, the image that, that we see Jesus providing is the rescue from judgment and a better way of living in this life. Different than the Old Testament. It is a rescue from judgment and a better way of living, more fulfilling life in this life today. That's what we see as, as one big difference between the old and the new. So a willingness to forsake all is a requirement of the gospel. However, it, it doesn't mean that the disciples were to forsake their responsibility to their families. Some of these men were married, they had homes, they had children, they had, and, and their families needed that income. So what do you do? How do you do both? Well, this has been an issue from even before that day until now. How do you? What about the family? It's certainly true that whatever mom and dad does is going to impact the whole family. Whether they're Christians or not, whatever they choose to do impacts the family. So, yes, when someone makes a turn for Christ and leaves what they, their old life behind and begins a new life in Christ, there's an impact on the family. Here's one thing that we need to 
understand. Paul wrote about it later, 1 Timothy 5, 1, uh, 5 and 8. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So what did the disciples do? How did that work? They left their homes. They followed Christ for over two years. What about their families? What about their income? Were they guilty of what Paul was writing about? Don't think so. God doesn't do that to you. He just doesn't. So what's important to Christ, what's important to God the Father, is our main teaching here at this point, and that is to be willing to put God first in everything, no matter what the personal cost. The distinguishing thing I want to make here today is not the cost to your family only, your personal cost. We can give everything and not damage our family. We can be willing to follow God first and not have it, it's gonna be an impact on our family because no matter what mom and dad do, it's gonna be an impact on the family. But Jesus doesn't say, or God does not require the family to suffer only or the family to suffer alone. The father, the mother, they still have a responsibility to the family because if they don't follow his leadership and provide for the family, Paul says they're worse than infidels. They've denied the faith. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? So, would you say that there's a balance <laughs> that we have to achieve? How many know that when you really, truly dedicated your life to Christ, there was an impact on your family? Yeah. How many, uh, how many did their best to shield their family from the major impact to protect them? That was the Holy Spirit. Here's what you do. Here's how you do it. Here's the balance that you must achieve. It's going to impact your family. But it cannot be something that your family suffers alone. Major impact is yours, personal. Financial. Labor intensity, struggles, 
all of it, the major impact is on you because you're the one that made that decision, not just the family. See what I mean? Not only the family. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. That's pretty much it, isn't it? Your heart, your soul, and your mind. That's all of you. Now we know that amazing things happened to prompt the calling of Peter. He was absolutely astonished at what had happened in a profession that he had been in all of his life. Couldn't believe it, his eyes, what he was seeing, what he was experiencing. Well, it's pretty much true of Moses too, wasn't it? The major him, he was overwhelmed by his calling. How about Gideon? Absolutely overwhelmed by what he was being prepared to do when called to do it. Jeremiah, others, we go on and on at the overwhelming task before a person when the calling takes place. When God says, through Christ, follow me, follow me. So they were, they were all overwhelmed by their personal calls, as are we. In the background of Peter and the other fishermen served them well in order to provide them with a unique perspective that prepared them for their new task as disciples. The same is true of each one of us. Peter the fisherman had a unique perspective on how to follow Christ in reaching men for him. Now you're going to catch men, Jesus said. He had a unique perspective on that. His past life, learn, lead was preparation for what he was going to do for God. You ever looked at your life that way? Whatever you've been doing is preparation for God's purpose to prepare you for what you're going to do for Him according to His calling and according to your purpose or mine. It's there. It didn't happen by accident. It's there to be learned from, to have experience that would launch you into better understanding of how to follow Christ. Make sense? and what your personal expectations um, should be and what your personal cost should be and, and what your training is in order to fulfill what God is wanting you to do. See, Moses grew to adulthood in the palace of Pharaoh. Okay, you remember that? Um, he learned a lot about the Egyptian culture, didn't he? He learned how they live, how they conduct business, how they make decisions, <clears throat> what the laws were, what the expectations of society was in the Egyptian life, all of it. You know what he did, how he had to flee. He became a shepherd. Many, many more years as a shepherd than as a preferred son in a palace. 
that prepared him for shepherding the people of Israel. It wasn't wasted years. It wasn't wasted time. It was preparation. It was God's timing. <clears throat> but in the meantime, showing him how to live, how to learn, and then how to lead. See what I mean? We're going through the same thing. How many know we can get the cart before the horse and start trying to lead before we've <laughs> lived and learned? Okay, I see those hands. <coughs> um, David was a preferred son. Was not. Excuse me. David was not a preferred son. That's what I meant to say. He was the least amount in that family, wasn't he? So he was a shepherd. He was a self-taught musician out there by himself, picking, picking and grinning. He was a fugitive. He was a commander. He was a warrior. Did any of that help him do what he was going to do once God put him in the place he wanted him to be? All of it did, didn't it? Every bit of it was training. Live, learn, lead. Every bit of it. You ever feel like you have wasted years? Ignore that sense. <laughs> Ignore that thought. God didn't waste the years. God uses that. No matter how we think we spent those years, God uses that as experience, as a launching pad for what he wants you to do for him. Um, Joseph was a preferred son. And then he was a prisoner. And he became an administrator. There he was in the middle of God's purpose, wasn't he? No wasted years. Not as far as God's concerned, all of that was training. All our personal history prepares us for our unique roles in serving Christ. That's what I'm trying to get across today. Each of us should view our past training for the task that God has for us today and seek his guidance as we live, we learn, we lead. Well, Peter seems to me to be much like Isaiah at his calling. First of all, they both witnessed amazing sights. Sights that they never thought that they would ever witness. And when they witnessed amazing sights, they realized who they were they realized who God was. They realized what was happening. They, was, they were being spoken to by God directly and called, and they responded. So there's some similarities there. There's also some differences. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet. And with twain, twain he, will we? And with twain, 
he did fly. <laughs> and one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then came the calling. Notice the fivefold effect now of Isaiah's vision and what it, that it, the vision that it had, the impact of the vision that it had on Isaiah. And the realization of who he was, who God was, and what the relationship was and was going to be. Let's look at those. In verse 5, the next verse, Then said I, you'll see a little number one in parentheses, this is the one of the five things, Woe is me! Uh, I am woe. That means I am grieved. I am distraught. I am I am suffering. Woe is me, was the first impact. Number two, for I am undone. I'm silenced. I'm without anything to say. I am cut down to size. I am destroyed. That's the second impact. The third, because I am a man of unclean lips. Does he realize now who he is? And the reason he realizes who he is is because he suddenly realized who God was. That's, that's how quickly we can realize who we are, isn't it? And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So not only am I like that, but everybody around me is like that too. That was number four. Number five, mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And when I saw him, I saw me. And that's what I want to make clear uh, in Isaiah's experience. So the essence of true conviction is a deep understanding and an overwhelming concern over who and what I am. Not simply what I have done or what I haven't done. We see people have an altar call and they think about what they've done and they come forward and they give their hearts to Christ and that's good. But in that, to, to really have that change of life as we need to, we need to see who we are. Who we are without him. And who he is what our relationship should be. Who, this is a strong statement, but think about it. Who and what we are is more important than what we have done. Sometimes what we have done does not mean that that's who we are. That's a mistake we've made, and that's terrible, and we need to repent for it if it's a bad thing. But in the midst of that, we need to realize who we are. See what I mean? That's who we, this is who we are. We're going to talk more about that as we go through this. God is more interested in his servants than in what they do for him. Another strong statement. 
Really? God is more interested in me than he is in what I do for him. Now that's a hard concept to grasp, but that's what he's been telling us, isn't it? He wants us. He wants me. He wants you. In other words, here's another one. Here's another one. Holiness, holiness of life is more important than holiness of doctrine. Doing the right thing is far more important than simply understanding what the right thing is or just talking about it. And I realize that this morning I'm talking about it. <laughs> But doing something is more important than talking about it or an understanding what the right thing is. It's about the journey. This is important because we never forget who we are without Christ. We just can't forget that. Pride, conceit, self-importance, they have no place in the person who truly knows who they are. That's why true repentance and conviction it has to contain the understanding, the realization of who we are. When we realize who we are, how could there be pride? How could there be conceit? How could there be self-importance? Not if we really understand who we are and who God is. It's all about how we live learn and lead look what happens after the five-hole realization that Isaiah experiences chapter 6 verses 6 through 8 then flew one of the seraphims, seraphims unto me having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched my lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Another reference to the Trinity, I think. Who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. I'd like to just depart for a moment with a conversation about something in the natural that helps me to explain what I'm trying to say this morning. Have you ever had a hero, a childhood hero, even better? Aside from Roy Rogers and Gene Autry, I had heroes. Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, Yogi Berra, Moose Scout. I had all those heroes. They were doing real things. I understood Roy and Gene were doing funny things, you know. And... Uh, Guys were told to go down when they went like that, right? Uh, I had another hero, and 
his name was General Brigadier General Robinson Reisner, as he is what he was when he retired. If you look at the page there on number four, the middle of the page, you'll see on the left a statue. And I don't know how it came out on the copies, but there's a pedestal that this statue is upon. It's clear. And uh, Tammy, would you read the inscription on it? No, I'm just kidding. It's too small. It has his name and his, his age and the dates of his service and so on. This is standing at the United States Air Force Academy. Is Robinson Reisner's statue. And the inscription below all of those statistics is a paraphrase of Isaiah 6-8. And it actually has the scripture on, imagine doing that today, huh? The scripture on the pedestal. And the, and the paraphrase is, who will go? Question mark. Send me! Exclamation mark. Isaiah 6-8. And that statue and that pedestal has served as inspiration for every cadet in the United States Air Force. Probably close to 50 years now. Well, he was my hero. The reason I knew about him is because when I was growing up, our pastor was also named Reisner. He was a younger cousin of Robinson Reisner, Jamie Robinson Reisner, who was his full name. And once in a while he would say something about his older cousin, who was a hero in the service. Been in three wars, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. He was a pilot. Below that statue you see another picture of him standing in front of his jet. It was an F-86, which at the time was the, the jet to fly. And he flew later jets, but I took a picture of this one because I love the story behind it. Um, he had many exploits. He set world records for speed, New York to Paris, things like that, maneuvers, um, leading edge things that a pilot would do in a new jet. A jet would go 680 miles an hour, roughly. Uh, unheard of for a World War II jet. It was the main jet in Korea's war and uh, often used in Vietnam as well. Um, he'd been shot down twice and lived. He uh, was a POW in Vietnam for seven and a half years. He was the highest, one of the highest ranking officers ever to be a POW and was treated harshly as such. He was such an inspiration to the men that were under him as a POW that they put him in solitary confinement for four years. And he still figured out ways to tap out Morse code to send messages to his men, messages of hope. Scriptures. A lot of men uh, 
died young who were prisoners of war because of the toll it t takes on a man's health to be a POW. He lived till he was 88. God give him the back many years. He had some crash landings due to equipment failure because he was always flying the newest and best and sometimes they didn't work right. Um, volunteered for everything. Whatever was happening, he had his arm up. He was volunteering. His whole life, he was like that. Um, among those exploits, oh, he chased Ru Russian MiGs in Korea, shot them down, chased one all the way back to the base, took out a bunch that were on the ground, <laughs> took out who knows how many in the hangars, turned around and came back through and did it some more. But while he was doing that, his wingman was shot up by ground fire and his plane was disabled. And I have a picture of that jet because I wanted to just explain something to you. That, that body from nose to tail is called a fuselage. That fuselage is 100% jet engine. It has a wing on either side and a tail, otherwise it's a jet engine. So it's very light and is as Tammy's dad would often say about his cars, that thing will flat walk the dog. <clears throat> and that meant it went fast. Somehow that meant it went fast. Um, no one has ever done this before or since. But when that wingman's flight or uh, jet was disabled, he was on a crash course, a course to crash land over North Korea. Do you see that intake there on the picture on the left, the, the, on the nose of that jet? That's the air intake for the jet engine. The picture to the right, do you see under the tail there, a smaller hole? That's the exhaust or the exit of the air for the jet engine. Reisner put the nose of his jet on the tail of the disabled jet, thousands of feet up in the air. And the air went through the disabled jet and into his jet, so he still had power. Problem was, there was also fuel and oil and everything else, so he couldn't hardly see out of his canopy, and it was ruining his jet engine. But. He was able, just like one car would push another car, he put his plane behind the disabled plane and he pushed his wingman's plane over 60 miles across that Korean ocean to an island that was controlled by the United States, enabling the pilot to jump out over US skies instead of North Korean skies. Now his jet is ruined and he, had, he didn't have enough power to land at the same island, so he took a chance for the next island over, also US controlled, and performed what's called a dead stick landing 
In other words, absolutely no power. He coasted, zigzagged in order to slow down and lower his altitude enough that he could land on the next island. Well, the, the triune was held and they tried to take away some of his rank because it wasn't an authorized use of a jet. Fortunately, there was another triune at a higher level that had more sense. They dismissed the charges and gave him another medal. He, U.S. Air Force, he was in the middle of that transition from Army Air Force to U.S. Air Force. He was the very first recipient of the highest U.S. Air Force Cross, medal for distinguished bravery in combat first one ever to get it and then a few years later he got it again a lot of things he did but what they remember most about him is that he always volunteered and when he was young he volunteered to help his dad work on cars raised in Oklahoma people had horses they couldn't tame he volunteered to break the horses. He rode in a rodeo. He was an outstanding wrestler in high school. I loved every part of him. Does that sound like a hero? Yeah. So, as the Air Force expanded and grew to its own, you know, unit of armed services, they looked at his life and they said, that's who we want to be the U.S. commander of the Western Pacific Flight Division. That's why his statue's up there. And his quickness to volunteer for everything was throughout his entire life. He had some leave during fight, flight school and he went home and the horse needed to be broken and he he broke it, but he also fell off and broke his arm and his wrist. He still had to pass flight school with a flight. So he had him cut off his cast, and even though he was in great pain, he passed his flight with flying colors, as they say. <clears throat> That's who he was. And I say all of this so that I can say this. It's fitting that he would quote Isaiah. Who will go? Send me. And it occurs to us, no one has ever answered the call of Christ faster than Isaiah. And no one could ever answer the call of Christ faster than Isaiah. I suppose some people could tie him, but who will go send me? That's pretty fast. God is still looking for who will go send me. He's still looking. He'll always be looking for who will go send me. Is that who you want to be? Send me. 
use me. Quick to volunteer for everything. So his life and what he learned gave him that leadership role. When you're a prisoner of war for seven and a half years, you kind of lose touch with technology. When he got back, he was called, he did what is called repatriated. He went back to the basic schools, became a pilot all over again, and continued his outstanding career as an Air Force pilot. That's why they wanted him to lead all of the pilots in the Western Division. Peter, on the other hand, he was, well, he was quick to respond. He dropped his nets and he's going to go. That's pretty fast. And yet he was often slow to obey. Not just initially slow to obey, but there was a few times when he was slow to obey. We know the stories of Peter. Well, so was Moses. He was slow to obey. So was Gideon. Gideon was slow to obey. And the others. I'm not trying to criticize Peter. He's in good company. There are others too that are slow to obey, including Dennis. Uh, from time to time, and some others. I don't see any hands, so I guess I'm by myself. <laughs> Only hands I see is when people are licking their fingers. <laughs> but even a cursory look at, at continuing events in Luke after Peter obeyed the call to follow Christ. Show us, they reveal many things that Peter and the others were going to have to learn as they began to live, learn, and lead. Luke chapter 5, 1 through 11, we've read that. Peter learns that Jesus is Lord over the fish at sea. Well, now, he had never thought of that before, had he? Right after that, 12 through 26 of chapter 5, Jesus is Lord over man's infirmities. Talks about the multitudes that Jesus healed. So many that he would nearly fainting in, uh, with fatigue at all of the healing that he was doing as they came one after another after another after another he had no breaks Luke 5 27 through 29 Jesus starts calling other disciples or unless it's recorded that way he's calling Matthew well Peter understood why Jesus wanted fishermen so they could be fishers of men why does he want a tax collector He's already taxing everybody. What, what's this all about? 
Peter's beginning to learn that Jesus wants everybody, doesn't he? And as he continued to choose disciples, he's choosing people. Why did he want a couple of Zionists, assassins? He was putting people on board his disciples' uh, role that didn't seem to have a resume. He had kind of a profession, but they really hadn't done much yet in life. Not like me, Peter. Peter had a lot to learn. So did all the other disciples. That's what I'm getting at. As they lived and learned at the, as they lived and learned to lead. Verse 30 through 39, same chapter. Jesus was, proves that he's wiser than the Pharisees. He left them stunned and without anything to say, unheard of. Inconceivable. You keep using that word. <laughs> Inconceivable. Chapter 6, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Inconceivable. <laughs> Look at what, Je what Peter has to learn as he lives with Christ. Well, we must all be among those who realize who we are in ourselves and who we are and can be in Christ. See what I'm talking about? When I really understand who I am, there just ain't no reason to be pride, prideful, or self-importance, or conceit, or better than anyone else, anyhow, any way, because I know who I am. And the embarrassing thing is that you know who I am. But that's the beginning of conviction. I keep saying this because the formula doesn't change. We didn't just have that experience and now we can be somebody else because we are the same thing that we were without Christ and we can be the same thing today we try to live without Christ leading us and guiding us in everything that we do. And the way that we are constantly reminded of how we leave, lead our life, lead, live, excuse me, live, lead, <laughs> live, learn, lead. <laughs> I'll get it. See who I am? Live learn, lead, the way that we do that is constantly be led by the Spirit. Because it ain't me. I attended a seminar one time with uh, my pastor when we were up in Connecticut. And it was for pastors and board. And the leader of the seminar was talking about how 
when you're the pastor, there's always a certain woman that wants to get cozy with you because she looks up to you and all of a sudden she's wanting more than just that pastor relationship. And first thing that you have to understand, gentlemen, is it ain't you. That's the first thing you have to understand. It ain't you. And uh, it was comical the way he said it, but I always remembered it, because it's not. It ain't us. Although failing at times, we can follow the examples before us, and we can learn as we live, becoming those who will lead, teach, and be the example to others according to our purpose in Christ. Live, learn, lead. Constant. Romans eight fourteen through 16. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby you, we cry, Abba, Father. Daddy. Daddy. Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So Paul identifies in, in these two verses five immediate results of deliverance from sin. Here they are. We're now led by the Spirit of God, not by fear. Number two, we become the sons of God. Number three, we receive the spirit of adoption. Number four, we now call God Daddy, Abba Father, in our new and close relationship with Him. Very, very important. God's Number five, God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's how we know. Again, the image conveyed in the New Testament is not one of impending judgment, but of escape from judgment and into a relationship with God through Christ Jesus. After all, the goodness of God led us to repentance in the first place, didn't it? Romans 2, 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Three things have happened that have led us to our current position with, with God, the Father, through Jesus Christ. Number one, God's goodness is found in Romans 2.4. His goodness has led us to repentance. God's goodness reaches out to us to bring us into a relationship with Him in order to fulfill His purpose. It's His goodness that has reached out to us. And when His goodness reaches out to us, we cannot help but see who we are without Him. Now I know who I am because I know who He is. Number two, God's forbearance 
God's self-restraint towards us has provided in his mercy in his mercy a tolerance about our sin and it permitted us to go on living in order that we might be saved you ever looked at it that way God wanted me saved he's allowed me he allowed me to go on living until I was saved because of his forbearance because he wanted me to be saved God's long-suffering well we know that don't we God's leniency and patience are extended toward us in order to bring us to eternal reconciliation to himself and those things happen so that we may become sons of God and we are now following Christ I go through that because what's changed did the formula change just because we're now Christians I don't think so it's the goodness of God that leads me that loves me that guides me it's his forbearance that provides me with his mercy, mercy, his tolerance while I'm learning as I'm living and his long suffering, his leniency towards me when I fail. People will often say that our salvation and Christian walk is because of Christ and his sacrifice and that's true yes that's true um, while it is true this concept can also lead to many people believing that God remains to them a distant father who is sometimes thought of as being held at bay because Christ is constantly stepping in between God and we the people on our behalf. Don't kill him just yet, God. Don't kill him yet. Somehow God is the guy that is up there somewhere and he says, Jesus, you take care of them. I've got this kingdom to run. I'm busy that he's some far-off father. He's not, he's daddy. Talk to some people and it's like they've, they've forgotten who, who God is. It's like, I'm serving Christ. Well, yes, I'm glad you are. Who's his daddy? <laughs> we're serving God aren't we through Christ does that make any sense with me now is anybody mad take it up with daddy without minimizing Christ in any way I'd like to remind everyone that it is all 
because of God. Because of God and his love for us, we have salvation through Christ Jesus. Because of God. So the formula for goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering does not change without our Christian walk. Excuse me, throughout our Christian walk. Walk, will we? Throughout our Christian walk. This being the extent of his willingness to retrieve us from sin into his eternal life highlights his love for us and his willingness to patiently deal with our inadequacies. Moving forward in our development to live, to learn, to lead. For us to his purpose, according to his purpose. Before the world ever began, he loved us. That's how much he loved us, before it began. He's my daddy. He loves for me to hug his neck and live for him through his son because of him, because of God, through Christ Jesus. Making sense? Okay. Amen. Are there any comments or Who's still with me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Father, we pray that you'll just bless everyone that's here and that's listening on the Internet. We pray that your Holy Spirit will uh, guide us, lead us, Help us to understand who we are without you, who we are because of you, and who we are with you. In Jesus' precious name we pray, and thank you for it. Amen. Amen.